hello everybody and welcome to our um, podcast series. Today we're lucky enough to have uh, Tom Bailey, Head of Therapies, returning to the discussion. Hi Tom. Hi Andy. And uh, the star of the show today is Bobby Hazelby, who's uh, uh, an ABA supervisor in Beyond Autism Schools, uh, BCBA as well. And she's been looking at, or the case study that you guys can see online is in relation to food desensitization I guess you could call it or possibly just increasing um the amounts of food that's consumed that type of thing but I'll let Bobby kind of take it from here and kind of give us a an overview on um what it is your your, you know an executive summary of the study that we're going to discuss today. Hi Andy yeah so um we had a young seven-year-old boy in my class who only ate a very small amount of food at snack time and lunch time and this presented very difficult for him at meal times. He would often get upset um, or particularly stressed at lunch times. This is obviously a big barrier. There's a lot of health uh, issues here, a lot of um, physical and cognitive impacts. So it was very important for this young man that we increased his food intake to a healthy level so that he could continue to be active, continue to learn at school and also increase consumption at home. So yeah, we looked at strategies to increase food intake. So it wasn't necessary that he needed to expand his food repertoire. It was more that he needed to eat more um, to a healthy level. Okay, cool. So said before, like obviously, we, you know, our, our whole series on podcasts is around, I guess, demonstrating the evidence of practitioners of beyond autism being inspired by research. And that the things that we're going to talk to today, we, we have a citation um, from Christopher Zanetta from 1978, which we've picked up in in the, in the literature around eating patterns and associated problems. Um, not massively easy reference to get hold of, but actually, there's other pieces that you've you focused on here. I mean, it's not um, you've got the Backmire 2009, which is a kind of a summary of lots of different interventions. But I'll let you talk about that because there's a particular twist on that article, which I thought was really interesting around the things that it didn't do and then the Williams Gibbons Shrek from 2005 that talked about um, comparing selective eaters across different uh, developmental disabilities which again I thought was a really interesting article that you selected. Do you want to sort of start talking to us about possibly the back of mind the Williams just to kind of give us what it was in there that really kind of hooked you and really kind of gave you that inspiration outside of the social significance, of course, of the social, uh, of the um, increasing volume of, of food, but like, what was it in there that really kind of caught your eye? Yeah, so I'll start with the Williams, Gibbons and Shrek uh, 2005 paper, only because it didn't necessarily help me with my procedure, but it gave a bit of context. Mm. So they, what they did is looked at a sample of children from a feeding program. And what they did is they separated them into different groups of children. So there were children who had a diagnosis of autism, uh, children who had special needs but without autism, and children without special needs. And what they were looking for is to see if there were any differences in those food problems that were presented, so um, dependent on their diagnosis basically. So they didn't find any strong significant differences between say the type of food that they ate or the problems that were presented. But what was interesting was that children with ASD, which is what um, the young boy in my case study is diagnosed with, are more likely to insist on using the same utensils, the same dish, or were adamant that their food would be pre prepared in a certain way. 
Um, this was significantly different to other children. So um, again, this was interesting to me because this is what we were seeing with the young man in my class. So he would only eat from his lunchbox. If it was in the, if it was presented in a bowl after being in the microwave, he wouldn't touch it at all. So it's clearly that this is kind of um, something that is seen within the diagnosis of autism um, that was emphasized by this paper. Um, and it just helped me provide context. Okay, this might be a barrier for him. This needs to be something that we need to tackle as well. Just in order for him to improve his life going forward, he's only seven. So should he continue to be stuck in these routines, it might have impact as he gets older. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I'm really pleased you started with that article in terms of, you know, the conversation because I, I, reading it myself, I was just thinking, actually, there's so many things like, you know, working with uh, an autistic population or with special needs in general, absolutely this stuff comes up all the time, like toilet training as well, like it's, it's a huge thing. But there was, you know, so practitioners will often be working within this, but I, I'm not entirely sure that everybody always considers all the implications. So, you know, Tom, just bring you in at this point. What sort of things would you, as a allied health professional particularly, um, be considering in terms of food, either um, selectivity, I guess, or in, in this case of, of children that didn't want to eat too much? Um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, the, the, the points within this article are really interesting because, you know, very often we will see within literature and, and within our own experience, you know, of working with young people that they really do struggle to to manage different textures in food, for example, they might consider, you know, a mix of foods on a plate to be very difficult. You know, if, if foods are touching, for example, that they won't want to eat them because they're potentially sort of contaminated. Um, like Bobby's describing as well, not necessarily wanting to eat out of a, a specific bowl or, you know, having to use a specific utensil. And, you know, this this is, you know, really interesting kind of uh take on this really I think you know where, where Bobby's kind of going with this discussion around this case study I think it's uh it's including some of those elements for sure I mean I guess my my point was also like we're, we're I think maybe a little desensitized to these issues as, as practitioners have been in the field for a long time and this is such a big deal like all the things that you really need to think about and it, and I think it's in the um discussion part of this article where it starts to talk about all the things that you know unless somebody presents you with the issue that maybe you, particularly in young children you might need to consider so things around constipation and how that might adversely affect someone's kind of I guess setting event for wanting to eat some things around uh, reflux which might also kind of have some sort of um, punishing effects on eating too, too much or too many different types of food that type of discomfort the, the anxiety piece comes in there as well which I thought was really interesting so how much of a screening went on for this young man with parents and kind of other professionals around you know it's cool for him to eat more it's just it's somehow he's got inflexible with it so we had conversations with speech and language anyway um who were working on his kind of speech production and he struggled with some he used time to communicate and we were encouraging um, certain speech sounds, but she would encourage us not to work on particular ones because it was particularly difficult for him to produce that in his throat or in his mouth. So that made us aware that maybe there is something okay. um, internally that could impact the way he eats or the way he produces things. 
But what we went with, again, is working with parents. So all of the food that came in was provided by his mum, had historically been eaten, had um, been eaten at home. So there were no concerns for us about actually medically impacting him uh, by encouraging him to eat more of this because historically he had been able to, he hadn't shown any signs of um, particular medical issues. It did seem more behavioural than it did medical. Was there a consistency? Like, did you have any contrast, behavioural contrast between home and school? Like, was he consistently not eating very much in both settings? Yeah, so it kind of arose at the similar time. He would eat, if we saw, yeah, a decreased amount of consumption at school, and mum would report the same at home. And then there were periods where he might have suddenly increased. And then again, the same increase was seen at home. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Uh, going back to the other kind of piece of inspiring, I guess you might call this a literature review in, in some respects. I mean, mm -hmm. I love finding these articles because they just <laughs> they become like the holy grail of oh my gosh, what a great place to start. Um, and if you if if listeners go to this article, what you'll see particularly is table one is a summary of the studies included in the review. And if you ever wanted a place to start with looking into this type of thing and in their case treatment of selective inadequate food intake what a place to start I mean Bobby what did you make of this article yeah it was perfect as soon as I read it I was this is exactly outlined what I needed what I wanted to look for um how I was going to go forward with this it's really well written it's really clear in terms of the strategies that were used um so yeah I thought it was brilliant I don't know if I'm having a particularly geeky day today but I was <laughs> If you look at this article, it just kind of, you know, if you if you weren't sure or in any way had any sort of shaky understanding of the difference between positive and negative reinforcement, like, you know, this one would really kind of pique your kind of, you really need to work this out now, just given how they look at stuff uh, and what they what they describe particularly early on. Tell, take, take a listener through the things that they did in this article and the, specifically what they were not looking at. Yeah, so the, I, the whole idea is to find treatments for um, kind of selective eating or low food consumption. So again, this is the key bit, the low food consumption is what I was looking for. Um, but what they were particularly looking at was finding out how to make this these strategies caregiver friendly, how they could be implemented at home, and certain strategies that were beneficial and ones that caused um, had a few more concerns. So they, yeah, like you said, Andy, did a literature review of 12 studies they identified um, looking at food um, consumption. And what they were looking for in particular were procedures that were shown to be effective without escape extinction, which is what was um, influenced me and was very important because we had we had tried escape extinction. It is in a lot of literature in terms of other skills that we teach. Um, it's quite commonly used in, in terms of simple academic demands. But when it came to food, it was a little bit more different. So um, initially, before we started this intervention, we would have our normal lunchtime for this young boy. And it would be there, it would be on the table. and We'd say, it's lunchtime. Um, we need to eat something or something along those lines or just keep it there until the end of lunchtime. So in theory, that is escape extinction. 
if we were telling him to eat, this was increasing behaviours, um, which is also reported by Backmeyer. The negative side effects of the use of escape extinction mm. does show the increase in emotional responses, the increase in aggressive behaviours due to extinction bursts. So there are elements of it that are ineffective using escape extinction. You know, I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you just start thinking to yourself, what do we know about kind of punishers and, the, you know, the Sidman papers and, and all that type of stuff to talk about becoming the punisher or at least, you know, <laughs> this battle of wills, which I think is is probably just a, it feels like a really, uh, what's the word, a non-edifying place to be. Like, it doesn't feel like you're really building skills, you're just increasing or decreasing tolerances. And it just feels a little bit um, not necessarily generalisable, maybe. And certainly within the context of what they speak about really early on in regards to uh, negative reinforcement, particularly, you know, at what point do you actually start to be really concerned that behaviours that are exhibited at a higher end, the ones that are really hard to ignore, then become the behaviours that the child would then use because they're being negatively reinforced. So you can, the, the, the food gets taken away in the presence of these behaviours. So, you know, as, as, as you sort of rightly pointed out, I think the doable part of this is what's really important, particularly across environments. Yeah, definitely. So that was my concern is I didn't want to make lunchtime aversive. So like you say, by being the punisher and being associated with that, it, it wasn't beneficial at all. We're not teaching him new skills here. Um, so this is obviously the element of this paper as well. Um, and as you've talked about already, there's a lot of um, explanation about learning history in here about how food problems can potentially develop because of negative reinforcement. So the child engages in crying at mealtimes, the food then goes away. Um, then it, for the parent or the caregiver as well, they're less likely to present that food the next time because they know it causes problems. So it just becomes this cycle of, I can't get my child to eat. I don't, they're not going to eat this. Um, there's also the learning history of the less preferred food goes away. The caregiver then pre presents preferred food because um, mm -hmm. then that makes them eat. They'll eat something at least, which is obviously an element of positive reinforcement. So there's a lot going on in terms of negative and positive reinforcement in theory. Um, and there could be a potentially a long learning history. Um, yeah. Quickly going back, back to the Williams paper, it talks about how the food issues develop in very early young ages, so up to the first 24 months. So if that's where their learning history is starting, I've got a seven-year-old boy with potentially a long learning history of negative or positive reinforcement schedules. So, Yeah, and it's really interesting. In terms of well-being, we've had this thing over a couple of podcasts, and the one of the things that was brought up by um, Taylor Christensen of the DOT in the last uh, podcast and we discussed a little bit it was around this um, unilateral effects of negative reinforcement and so from a parental point of view if you you just want your child to eat something so you know what what impact does the high levels of stress or anxiety have on that relationship between oh gosh I've really got to bed down and try to do this when actually you just want the child to eat so you want to kind of escape that anxiety but then also you don't want to see your child distressed in that in the sense that you it kind of feels like it's inferred in the escape extinction to me, like that there would be an element of I'm not going to let this behaviour work and then therefore, you know, but again, like having such a clear 
procedures you've you've mapped out actually kind of means that you consistently working on positive reinforcement and increasing behavior and actually should start to eliminate some of these issues around um, differential um, differential sort of bootleg reinforcement where occasionally the high-end behaviors work because you've set some really kind of sensible points in terms of your changing criterion okay perfect Tom can I just ask you as well from a from a speech and language point of view obviously you'd have you know, you would have had quite a lot of specialism or experience with um, eating, as it were, not yourself, but <laughs> the kids you work um, What are the types of things that are considered by speech and language and or allied health professionals in regards to this type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, so as Bobby's sort of touched on, it's that physiological side of things that we would want to, uh, you know, ascertain to start with from a speech therapy perspective. You know, is there anything actually physically blocking that child being able to eat? Um, you know, is it is it something that, you know, we can we can then work on from an aura motor perspective? But actually, I think with our population that we're working with, it is very much that multidisciplinary approach with OT and SLT to look at the, the sensory elements of this. Um, it's looking at those social elements, I think, like Bobby has already kind of been trying to describe as, as well around parental anxiety and almost kind of that routine that some families get into of almost force feeding, for want of a better word, and just kind of panicking to, to ensure that the nutritional input is given and that the food is eaten. And obviously, you know, to be able to go out to restaurants is hugely important for families to eat with each other is hugely important. So, so all of those kind of social aspects, those physiological aspects are all tied up. Um, and I think, you know, just to kind of come back to one of the points that Bobby was talking about, there's, there's some really nice examples of, you know, if, if you think about yourself, you know, you, you might not really like eating broccoli, for example. That's one thing I really don't like eating. I think if I was to demonstrate that to to my child, um, you know, automatically you're kind of putting that sort of behaviour and that negativity around broccoli onto your child and, and they're going to kind of, you know, take some of that on as well. And I think, you know, like Bobby was saying, some of this stuff you're working with a seven year old has been instilled from a very early age. So it's it's hugely important to guide the families as well as, you know, working with the with the young people themselves. Great, thanks, Tom. Um, okay, sorry, I, I kind of cut across you there, Bobby, in terms of th this article. Take us through the rest of it. I mean, there's some clearly, they talk about all sorts of different stuff and, and then explain to the listener how you then landed on your uh, DRA. Yeah, sure. So as we've already touched about escape extinction and we've talked about parent, anxieties and things this paper is really important because it's looking at how we avoid that <laughs> um, it's clear that parents will really struggle with escape extinction and other caregivers um, understandably you've, like you've said Andy you've got to see this through and it's going to be very very difficult for parents so this article looks at positive reinforcement or other strategies which have been effective without necessarily using escape extinction which was brilliant it just meant that we could use that at school, we could uh, easily transfer this to home, um, so it looked great. Um, so like I said, they found 12 studies which were effective for increasing food intake, um, avoided escape extinction. As Andy directed to the table already, table one is really good outline of all of the studies, all of the um, authors, uh, what the goal was for that paper and the procedures that were used and the results that they obtained. So for seven out of the 12 papers, differential reinforcement of alternative behaviour was actually used to increase maybe um, their repertoire of foods or the amount of food or the type of food that they ate, which is great. <laughs> we can easily apply that. 
there were other strategies used. So we have things like simultaneous presentation where we're pairing preferred foods with less preferred foods. That then goes alongside with stimulus fading. So the preferred food is reduced to smaller and smaller amounts until the, the child is eating the least preferred food independently. Non-contingent reinforcement was in there, which also was interesting. So a preferred item or a toy was available throughout that meal time to increase food consumption. And the, finally, uh, another strategy used was high probability sequencing. So this particular paper used kind of blank spoons, empty spoons, uh, worked on the child accepting that spoon uh, consecutively, and then the last trial, the three food on there. So um, looking at low, high probability behaviours. Yeah, I can kind of imagine that one going happening and just like, surprise! <laughs> Yeah. I how that would go. So it's interesting because you talk about, um, as, as you sort of rightly pointed out, all the different types of focuses that the foci that they had across these articles, which, uh, yeah, you can, you know, all, all validated, all empirically validated kind of methodology that you would see appear across kind of uh, the different sort of subject matter and behavior analysis. I mean, it's in a way some fairly kind of basic conceptual things but it kind of struck me that actually a lot of this stuff was around changing foods uh, as in you know they would eat a lot of carbohydrates or starches I think they mentioned in one of the articles and yet maybe not vegetables was that in the um the other paper that we were talking about I think it might have been yeah Williams as well touch on that yeah so but whereas for you obviously you had a repertoire of foods that everyone was kind of happy with but wasn't enough being consumed. And presumably there was an issue around weight and development in this case. Yeah, not um, extremely detrimentally at this point, but for his age and he was an active boy. So the kind of, I guess, calorie intake was not appropriate. Sure. OK, before we go any further, I just want to start thinking about our keywords to make sure that people are actually listening to this uh, podcast if they want to gain their CEUs. Um, so, Tom, could we please go to you for our first keyword? Sure. First keyword today is coffee. Thanks very much, Tom. OK, so we've got some scene setting. We kind of understand the prevalence of the issue. We're starting to get build a picture of the, of the social significance for this young boy particularly. So I wonder if you could take us through your methodology there, Bobby, around what you did, um, uh, the, yeah, well, the method and, and then how you ended up on the procedure. Yeah, so the Backmire paper helped give an outline and I determined that the antecedent strategies such as simultaneous presentation or stimulus fading wouldn't be as caregiver friendly as differential reinforcement. That could easily be applied at home. It's kind of natural anyway, as I'll discuss further. But yeah, so I kind of wanted to go down a differential reinforcement route. So we looked at taking a baseline where he currently was then what we needed to tackle was him eating um, in different bowls, using different cutlery, as well as him increasing his consumption. So yeah, we kept everything as natural as possible. So all of the interventions were conducted at lunchtimes with his peers, just as before. We, at this point, didn't put any stipulations on at snack time. We just focused at lunchtime, so we had a bit longer. Um, his snack, he had favourite things anyway. We were able to identify 
reinforcers. So for him, it was his biscuit. So he always came with a biscuit in the morning. He could sign for it. He showed preference for it. Um, so we identified this as the reinforcement um, for his for eating more food. Like I say, we used the food that mum provided. So it was a range of pastas, rice, but within that were vegetables. So we knew that he was getting a, a range of foods. But yeah, so that's how we started. We wanted to keep everything as natural as possible so that we didn't have to add a generalisation aspect. We didn't have to do it in set sessions. It, the natural setting was already there. It wouldn't, um, we wouldn't add any other stimuli. What I liked about your study, actually, it really comes through like you, you know, you could have gone down formal preference assessments, right? Like you could have done. You could have gone down, let's have this trial based a lot of the time just to kind of maybe break the back of the resistance aspect or the inflexibility or really find out what schedule you needed for reinforcement and so on. But what I liked about it was you went, you know, I know this, I know this child. We, you, you've, um, what's the word? Appreciated maybe is the best word. You've understood the stimuli that currently exist and the reinforcers that currently play and what works contingently. And then you built upon that rather than making it overcomplicated for the sake of it. You've kind of gone down a parsimonious route, if you like, like this is where the child's at. I think this will work. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. He is a young boy that is has rigid routines um, in other aspects of his day as well. So we wanted to keep lunchtime as lunchtime. If we introduce food at a different time in terms of doing a preference assessment, we don't know if that would have made a difference because it's not lunchtime. Um, he's very aware of if other people are getting their lunchboxes, oh, it's lunchtime. He's got a lot of incidental learning around that. So we didn't want to add anything into his day that might make things more aversive. Okay, suddenly now we're eating and you're expected to choose something to eat in terms of finding a preference assessment. So yeah, we had all the stimuli there that we predicted and hypothesized would be effective. Very cool. So that's how you began. Um, so we, in terms of the actual methodology, we obviously wanted to take baseline. So what we did for the baseline was presented his food in his lunchbox. We wanted to see how much he can actually eat or would eat. We didn't present any demands around it, anything different than normal. So it's lunchtime. And then that was it. We didn't apply any escape exclusion or anything, just left him to eat, see what he did. We did to, we just take, took data on the number of mouthfuls. Um, they always seemed to be around the same average. It wasn't that he'd have little bits, he would fill that spoon up and eat it. Um, so that kind of maintained throughout the whole thing. It, we didn't have to take data on grams or anything like that because the mouthful pretty much stayed the same, obviously depending on what the food was, um, but was um, that wasn't a factor for us. So then when it came to the intervention, we did go straight in with a different bowl, a different spoon. We kind of didn't want to go increase all the consumption in the lunchbox to then have to go back and repair the spoon and the fork. So we just established a brand new intervention, brand new setting um, with reinforcement to help, to hopefully to increase the intake. <laughs> yeah. Please, please yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I want to have to kind of go, to, and it's interesting, they talk about, is it Cooper that gets referenced actually in, in the article by Backmire around um, figuring out the kind of the parametric aspects like yes and, and do you know what why not i mean 
sometimes if you go for 100 percent of everything you know exactly what you've done and other times you know you might put a little bit of something a little bit of something else you're like oh gosh what, where am i so yeah okay great why not yeah <laughs> yeah um and throughout the whole procedure we always tried to make sure that he was going to eat something so that's why with the baseline we didn't go straight in with a bowl and just check it because he might eat zero for yeah. that time period so we'd rather him eat something from his lunchbox because food is so important so then with the intervention we went obviously straight in with reinforcement we kind of went with the average baseline or slightly above the average so we took baseline for two weeks then got an average we went we set the first target mouthfuls as slightly above that but achievable he'd already eaten that in the baseline but not every day so we knew he can achieve that so yeah what we did was set target mouthfuls every lunchtime this was dependent on success so should he eat the target mouthfuls for three consecutive sessions without refusals we then incrementally increased the target number of mouthfuls depending on the average of the previous three sessions we kind of then implemented a changing criterion design to assess the effectiveness of the reinforcement. So should the criterion improve? Does his behaviour increase with that? Um, are we getting kind of functional control? You mean eating behaviour? Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. so eating the target number of mouthfuls um, consumed, increasing, refusal behaviours decreasing, zero, hopefully. So what we did was had a terminal reinforcer for the target number of mouthfuls, which was his biscuit. But during the meal time, we also had a variable schedule of reinforcement just to keep the motivation, to reinforce the mouthfuls. This was in the form of social interaction. So the boy was socially motivated. He liked being lifted up. He liked tickles, like high fives, mm. um, social praise. So we incorporated that as well at this stage because the reinforcement element was, was new in application to the mealtime and we wanted to obviously increase his um, mouthfuls. So I had a question about that actually. So it, within the literature review paper, the, the um, one we've been discussing earlier, Backmire, they separate out non-contingent reinforcement from positive reinforcement, particularly for eating either non-preferred or, or more, you know, um, increasing food repertoires. So yeah. Was it like, do you just reflecting back, do you think the social praise and high fives and the tickles and the, and the kind of being lifted up and stuff like that, do you, do you think that was delivered uh, contingently or, or was it, what, do you feel like it was in the, there was a non-contingent aspect to it as well? Yeah, it was hard to analyse it when writing the case study because yes, it is contingent on him eating. So he'd have to have eaten x number of mouthfuls then i deliver reinforcement but it is delivered throughout the meal time yeah. i but suppose they, the yeah. thing with non-contingent reinforcement is it's delivered no matter what so it's non-contingent to anything so should um our young boy engage in refusal behaviors that reinforcement wasn't there right so it okay. technically is contingent on the mouthfuls that he ate um and that was just on a variable schedule so initially it was a VR of three, which is relatively high for him. We kind of looked at his daily VRs um, in different contexts and, and used that basically. I didn't want to go straight into FR1 um, just and then because we've got a fading aspect. 
Yeah, that, that's a smart move, actually, because, you know, it can cause other problems. Yeah, maybe delaying the time or anything like that. So I just went in with not what he's naturally used to throughout the day and incorporated that in lunchtime, which appeared effective, <laughs> which we can go through the results in a bit. But yeah, the idea was to, when we incrementally increase the target mouthfuls, we also looked at reducing the reinforcement schedule so that eventually it becomes a natural, you've eaten your meal, you can have your dessert, which is very natural and very much like your grandma's law element of pre-mac in there. Um, sure. First you eat this, then you eat this. But it's all that kind of language that can be used at home, that will be used at home. But at the minute, our first step was quite high reinforcement in terms of definitely in terms of being lifted up that's not <laughs> the most appropriate for lunch times but um i'm not going to be maintained by mum but we obviously is very very highly motivated for that so we use it yeah and, and it's interesting isn't it you talk about that kind of pre-map principle there like yeah, I, I don't know if you would ex you've experienced this and the same would maybe go for you as well tom it's like you, you kind of when you look to find, or what what could be a way of doing this? Oh, I know, pretty much principle, grandma's law, it'll work, don't worry. But it's and it's the same, actually, if you think about the EFL, like the, the within the essential eight can accept no, things like that. But you have to get there. Like you can't just say, oh, child doesn't eat enough food. I'm just going to set up these really kind of um, stringent criteria. Like, well, look, if he wants to eat, if he wants the nice thing, he's got to eat the bad thing. Like that's really kind of, is very unlikely to work unless you have built up the pre actually the momentum the prerequisites the understanding the you know to use a really kind of unbehavioral word but like or non-behavioral word like the trust element you know the reinforcer is going to come um but it's you don't kind of set up yourself to be at loggerheads with the child and, and, and the kind of the function of the behavior yeah definitely if that's their learning history is this less preferred item is presented I'm going to engage in this behavior. If that reinforcement is not higher quality than the escape behavior, then it's not going to have any difference. And then there's going to be no successful exchange there. Oh, he's not eating enough. Just tell him to eat more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not going to work. Okay, cool. Sorry, I'll stop interrupting you. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> so, fantastic results. Very, very happy with them in terms of just general um, observations at first. So, Refusals dropped pretty instantly, stayed at uh, the table, eating his food. We had initially an average during baseline of 3.9 mouthfuls, mm -hmm. which at lunchtime is very low. For a child to be eating three mouthfuls and then continue the rest of the day, that was where our concern was, mm -hmm. um, with an average of, with a range of zero to 12. By the end of this study, we were getting an average of 30 mouthfuls with a range of 18 to 40. So 18, still still quite a wide range. And I would have liked to look further in maybe it was the type of food, but there was still a, a massive increase in, well, a significant increase in the amount of mouthfuls consumed. Um, mm -hmm. And I've said about observations. So on multiple occasions, he was actually requesting more. So we would prepare a certain amount in a bowl for him. That would then be finished within, before that 30 mouthfuls. He would then ask for more, which was, Brilliant. <laughs> He's gone from eating three and finished and putting everything in the bin to asking for more and actually eating more, um, yeah. which is wonderful to see. He um, had was also accepting different bowls, different cutlery, um, 
everything really. So it was really successful. He also did have an absence of 10 days, which was due to holidays and then actual uh, sickness. But then when he came back, we kept the criteria exactly the same and he maintained that and then excelled it even further. Gonna ask you to take us through that. So your, your figure one and figure two, um, give a really nice representation of a the kind of the um, the visuals for the target number of mouthfuls, but then also your your graph. So I wonder if you could take the listeners through those, just on the top line, just so that people understand what's being represented here. Yeah, definitely. I realised I didn't actually go through what happens at lunchtime, um, but so obviously we had our target number of mouthfuls. If we let the boy just eat naturally, gave our reinforcement contingent on whatever our schedule was. If he then reached that target mouthful, we would say to him, oh, you can finish if you want. It was a very natural um, statement and something that we knew historically did work with this boy. So he also has issues with kind of less preferred activities, not so motivated by them. But if we give him the language such as, oh, you can finish, he'll either sign finish and be happy to tidy up or he will continue with the activity. So we could see that he might understand that language in the context of lunch. So we wanted to do that rather than telling him he's finished because mm. he might actually eat more, which is what we want. We never want to stop him from eating. So we reminded him he can, he can finish, at which point he would either sign finished, then he would get to tidy it up. He liked to put it in the bin. He was very independent putting it in the dishwasher. He would finish and have his biscuit. Or if he continued to eat, we would allow him to eat and continue our schedule of reinforcement. We didn't want to punish it. We didn't want to reduce the schedule of reinforcement because that's a positive thing that we want to mm. achieve. If we had a yes, but with refusals, so he achieved the target number of mouthfuls, we would then still tell him, you can finish. He then tied it up, but he didn't access the biscuit. So the biscuit was contingent on eating the target number of mouthfuls and zero refusals. So um, any behaviours, refusal behaviours in that didn't result in a biscuit. The schedule of reinforcement in terms of social praise was still there um, when he was on task and eating, uh, but the terminal reinforcement was not there. Just so he's discriminating between a, an appropriate lunchtime and a less appropriate in terms of refusal. Mm. Um, if he did not achieve the target number of mouthfuls, if he requested finished, for example, say he'd eaten five, the target is 10, um, we'd remind him to eat some more. So this area, there is an element of escape extinction because we would ask him to eat some more, at which point if he didn't emit any refusal behaviours, he just carried on eating, our schedule of reinforcement continued. And um, he would keep going until we got the target number of mouthfuls and the same contingency would apply. So in terms of he can finish at the target number, but he doesn't get his biscuit. Okay. Um, we would keep reminding him to eat more every time that he has finished until the target mouthfuls were eaten, at which point um, we would then prompt him to request finished and but he does not receive the biscuit. So, yeah, the biscuit was very much target number of mouthfuls, zero refusals. Um, then you get your biscuit. Did he have any visual support to kind of show him that? I mean, I, I'm just looking at having hearing you explain it and then looking at some of the data around how, you know, you kind of followed a baseline logic, really, of kind of when you move when you move up your criterion. You get some variability in your data, a fair bit of bounce, but you kind of see a general upward trend. There seems to be some conceptual understanding growing here. Is that, would that be consistent with this chap? Like, is he, you know, in that space where 
in a way, like you've represented a, a basic rule governed behavior here. Yeah, we vigils have not had not been effective for him previously in any other aspect of his um, day. He had brilliant understanding in terms of when he can do something, when he can't, in terms of yeah, and discriminations in general. So I, we kind of kept it yeah, just verbally, mm. so that the reinforcement was just contingent on on him eating. And also, I guess we paired up that language. Can you eat some more? He still got reinforcement by eating more at that point. So we're not forcing him. Well, we are in terms of saying you need to eat more until you've met your target mouthful. But it's more positive because he's receiving reinforcement. Whereas historically, it was you need to eat more, no reinforcement. You just need to keep eating. You're clearly sharing refusal behaviours, but you need to keep eating. <laughs> yeah, sometimes... Um, these things behaviourally, it sounds really cold, but like when this manifests in a space, it's like, you need to eat a bit more. Come on, let's go. You can do it. You know, it's all this, you get much more kind of positive natural language. Um, and why not? Like, if he, if he has that level of understanding, why wouldn't you feed back to a child with that level of understanding? Do you know what? You did really well, but not quite as well as you can. So next time, maybe you can get a biscuit. You know, that type of idea, because that is, you know, right back at the beginning of the root of this conversation, we started talking about the doable, the, the social significance, how it needs to be generalizable, maintained across all environments in order for it to become a fluent skill. And, you know, why that's a very natural interaction you could really see happening for parents and, and their children at home around, keep going, you can do it, you know, that sort of idea. Yeah, that's it. What we tried to do was just emulate what would happen at home <laughs> or what we see with children eating anyway. Most often parents will be like, oh, no, eat some more, eat your vegetables first, then you can have your dessert. That kind of stuff happens anyway. What I would have liked to have done is take data on the amount of times we did need to remind him because it was very few and far between. Mm. So by that, so the second figure is my graph, um, the results. And by within that first step, he's already at zero refusals and he's achieved the target just by introducing reinforcement. Yeah. So it's already creating a positive environment. And I, I, I get where you're going, because I think you, you talk about it within the context of your results, actually, where you say, if you kind of, if you smashed a target, you just moved on. Like you, you didn't kind of necessarily, almost like a probe correct, like, oh, he could do this, this was fine. So we'll just ramp it up to the next level till we get to a space where he's, we're able to kind of work with his autonomy to a certain degree. We're able to work with, you know, maybe he is full now and it doesn't feel so behavioural. Yeah, exactly. We, I think within that um, one, two, three, fourth step, you do see a lot more variability at which point we were considering how much does this boy actually intake and how much does he need to intake? So we, yeah, like you say, we incrementally increased it to a point and then by the end of this study, we were able to fade out and give him the food, be in charge of it. So he was um, preparing his own food, putting it in his own bowl, eating whatever he wanted, but it was a lot more than three mouthfuls. Yeah. So, like you say, there was definitely autonomy. We needed that reinforcement in there initially to establish lunchtime as not an aversive experience. You can do this, exactly. Um, yeah. And increase that food intake by then and then increase autonomy. Thanks, but before we kind of move on to kind of wrapping this up, is, uh, I need to pause for just a second and, and get our second keyword. Um, so Bobby, what, what's your keyword, please? Strawberry. 
Strawberry. Okay, perfect. So we've got coffee and strawberry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, cool. So, Tom, I just wanted to bring you in again at this point and just um, uh, Bobby's been taking us kind of really, really kind of painting the picture for us of what happened and the results and how natural it was. I just wanted, wanted to invite some comments from a from an allied health point of view and, and a practice point of view in that field. Yeah, I think, you know, it's just so lovely to hear this example, really. And I think Bobby's done such a fantastic job in 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 having such a great success on this one, because I suppose from a from a therapist perspective, if we had come in and potentially not known this young man as well as, as Bobby did, we might have done a bit more assessment around, you know, really trying to work out, you know, what is it that's causing this, you know, lack of desire to eat um we would potentially have also involved or engaged a nutritionist to consider you know what's what's the impact of this young man not eating um but you know he's just got been provided with such a positive environment to to kind of manage this which which i think is you know a huge success really um and you know huge praise to, to bobby and the team for for doing that really because you know there's there's uh, an approach that we would use which is the SOS approach the sequential oral sensory approach which is really kind of building up that tolerance of food for some young people you know really not even starting with eating it but just tolerating it being on the same plate for example you know maybe playing with the food you know having some fun with food type activities and then smelling the food potentially then licking the food you know all of those steps to move towards actually eating and, and you know none of that seemed to really need to to happen in this case which you know actually you know very fortunate and um, but also kind of you know very very you know good because of the uh, environment that's been created and that's actually what's smart about this study um or this this case study is mm. much like when you kind of look to see you know classically you look to see how increasing communication can reduce problem behavior and your your your, your literature review kind of confirms that for you quite nicely but what if your problem behavior is so full-on that you know it still exists even though you've reduced it a lot but in the case of Bobby's case study is that you know there's reams of literature around increasing food variety but not loads around how one might increase the amount of volume that somebody consumes despite liking the foods um which you know it takes takes some real thinking to kind of be inspired by the research and then take it that next step for the kind of for the individual in case all right, thanks, Tom. Yeah, so interesting, this case study. I, I just wanted to pause for a moment and just think about how across these series of podcasts, we, it's so, um, this can sound a bit silly to say, but like so inspiring to be inspired inspired by the science. Because if you look at what I suppose would fill one line in regards to describing the problem of not eating the right amounts, all the things that you've described there, Bobby, and thinking about the contingency maps that exist around eating and, and how people are negatively reinforced by not addressing these issues directly. And I suppose that's a unilateral effect for the child and for sort of caregivers. And also taking what would ordinarily be potentially the place where you might start with escape extinction, but then recognising that you're actually looking to increase eating behaviour as opposed to decreasing uh, refusal behaviour and looking at how your measures of uh, and the ranges you achieved in terms of success, but then also how you would have fed back to the child in, in terms of um, communicating success. You know, to Tom's point, talking about how modelling and eating together may have some impact on, on behaviour, because we know there's lots of research around 
either in vivo modeling or video modeling that that really help children or, or anybody really to progress and then you've got this idea of the the applied aspects which of course what we've got to think about really is that this type of issue if it progresses and if it exacerbates we're thinking about failure to thrive we're thinking about the potential of peg feeding and actually there's a really surprisingly low threshold for children perhaps understandably around if somebody's not consuming enough calories how does one get it into them uh, and that can quite quickly slide towards peg feeding especially if you're going towards specialists so i guess really for me i think it's just made me really think listening to you around the importance of procedure versus generalization because i think if anybody's listened to the previous podcasts uh, particularly the one about emotional regulation uh, that jordana uh, spoke about there's this prevailing issue around everybody kind of agrees on the outcomes but there's a real difficulty and i think this is where behavior analysis comes into it about really unpicking what your system is because it's not just about um, outcomes it's about the targets and it's not just about opportunity to do those things but how you're going to achieve those targets thinking about emotions you're listening to how it was just a raft of children need to do this children need to do that but, but literally how so at least with eating we have some sort of societal rhythm and, and cultural support for the opportunities but I find it really interesting how behavioral science seems to be the only science that can offer this sort of component and parametric analysis to address real contingencies at a single case level that versus even in areas of industry that offer some forensic analysis we seem to have maybe generic in this case generic nutritional deficit goals which kind of which ignores i guess the, the normalization of that which is that actually what are the behaviors that we need to see to increase food intake as opposed to this kind of idea of outcomes focused only without any strategic aspects to get there and maybe we could bracket some of this in aspirational advice because working alongside colleagues to think about behavioral outcomes which ultimately end in some level of autonomy for the child which you managed to achieve here bobby is what makes it so interesting to me uh, bobby is there anything you kind of want to bring up for the listener in terms of discussion and a conclusion or just further thoughts yeah, I just want to emphasize that it is very much an individualized approach. It was um, specific for this learner. Thankfully got a lot of information from the back of my paper. So would definitely recommend that for other practitioners. Mm. And as Tom has outlined, there are multiple strategies that need to be in place. But for this particular learner, there were prerequisites that were already there. It was just a case of finding the right strategy for him. And it, fortunately was extremely beneficial which mm. was fantastic to see um but yeah it's been wonderful to get the results that we wanted and in such a positive way it's been positive for everyone making meal times more positive all right thanks Bobby. it's a, a really interesting conversation really enjoyed um you really brought that kind of case study to life with the kind of all your, your various references and, and contexts and so forth so thank you for your time uh, thank you also to tom for spending some time with us and insights into the kind of how it might be seen through an hour health professional kind of lens um but then also to kind of help everybody understand that there are th there are other ways of doing it um other frameworks potentially you could call it but i, I was sort of you know i'd be quite happy to say that i suspect any one of those would need to have an element of positive reinforcement laid in there to increase either you know different food consumption or um uh you know volume of food all right thanks again everybody um I hope everybody enjoyed listening to this podcast. Uh, 
John Dawson is going to be running a few series of these, so keep a listen out for further updates online. Uh, and thanks for listening. Bye.